thank you for the clarity with which it speaks and the power and the authority. And we pray that you would fix this verse tonight on our minds so that we will be convinced of its truth ourselves, but we'd also want to share that truth with others. For Jesus' sake. Amen. Please do be seated. Well, we're continuing our series on uh, great verses of the Bible. They're all great, as Louis said, but uh, these are special ones. And we come to Romans 3.23. Romans 3.23. It's on page 1131 of your Bible, so do open them. We're trying to go through some of the fundamental uh, well, verses that are fundamental to the gospel over these uh, Sunday evenings. So at the end of the series, we'll all have in our minds uh, a clear view of what the Bible message is through these different verses. So I hope you're remembering them as we go through them. Uh, we've done Revelation 4 verse 11. Last week we did Colossians 1 verse 15. This week is Romans 3.23. If you know all the verses that we cover in the evening service, you'll be explain, able to explain the gospel to almost anyone. And I do commend us doing that, actually. Uh, and if you don't want to learn all of them, I suppose there's a kind of fallback, which is on our, our bookmark, our church bookmark. You'll see some of these verses written down there, so you can remember them. So if you can't always remember the verses, make sure you've got that bookmark in your Bible so you can read it and refer to it and then show the Bible to somebody else. Because if you are sharing the Bible with somebody, it's always great to be able to show them the actual bit on the Bible, sometimes to get them to read it out. Because when people see it there in black and white, it does speak with a power. So we can say all we like, but when they see the Bible says it, it does actually make a great deal of difference. Well, Romans 3.23 is the verse tonight, and it's, there is no difference, the end of verse 22, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. There is no difference, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. It's one of the first verses I ever learned. I remember somebody explaining the gospel to me using the bridge diagram. He pointed me to Romans 3.23, Romans 6.23, Isaiah 53.6, John 1.12, Revelation 3.20. And I was so excited. At last I could explain it to somebody. And it started here in Romans 3.23. It's a key verse. Now just a, a little story actually before I begin looking at it closely. It's about a couple who are on their way home from a pub one night when their car got pulled over by the police. The officer told the husband that he was stopped because his taillight was not working. The man said, officer, I'm terribly sorry. I didn't realize it was out. I'll get it fixed right away. At which his wife interrupted him and said, I knew this would happen. I told you two days ago to get that light fixed. So the officer, not quite sure what was going on, asked for the man's license. He looked at it and he said, you do realize, sir, that your license has expired. Again, the man apologized profusely. He mentioned he hadn't realized that it expired. He would take care of it first thing in the morning. But again, his wife interrupted. I told you a week ago that the DVLA had sent you a letter telling you your license had expired. Well, by this time, the man was a bit upset with his wife contradicting him in front of the officer. And he said in a rather loud voice, Jessica, will you please shut up? Whereupon the officer leaned over towards his wife and asked her, does your husband always talk to you like that? And she said, no, not always, only when he's drunk. <laughs> now there are times when the truth is too uncomfortable to be told. We'd much prefer other people not to know. Most of us are probably very glad that people don't know the full truth about us, they're not able to see inside us. But there are other times when of course the truth does need to be told. We don't help anyone by keeping quiet. 
So you go to a doctor for tests, you need him or her to tell you the truth as a result of them. It's no good them fobbing you off with something that isn't really true. And spiritual truth is like that. It's not always pleasant. It's not always what we want to hear. It's not always flattering. In fact, it's often downright unflattering. And yet without it, we would never make any progress at all. And it is certainly true of our verse tonight. One of the plainest, most unflattering verses in the Bible. But equally, it contains a truth so important, so vital to proper understanding, that without it, we'd never really understand or have a relationship with God at all. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. It comes as a climax to a whole series of statements from Paul about the reality and the seriousness of sin. So in verses 11 and 12, uh, or verse 10 to 12, Paul writes, There is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands, no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. Then in verse 20, at the climax of all that he says, having gone through all these different uh, verses from the Old Testament, the Psalms in particular, the climax comes in verse 20. Therefore no one will be declared righteous in his sight by observing the law. Rather, through the law we become conscious of sin. In other words, he says we are all sinners and there's nothing we can do about it. And if we want to win God's acceptance by what we do, then we haven't got a price. Not one person will ever be declared righteous in God's sight by observing the law. No one. Without exception. We will never do it. Now as I say, this isn't a particularly popular idea. People hate being told they are sinners. They may talk about their mistakes, but not about their sin. It's demeaning. It damages our self-respect. It's humiliating. That's what people often say. And it's the sort of thing that's invaded the Christian church as well. Uh, many parts of the church do not want to talk about sin. And if you know a man called Robert Schuller, who set up the Crystal Cathedral in the United States, a huge monument, incredibly expensive. I think it's now gone bust and been sold off to the Catholic Church. Uh, he would have claimed Robert Schuller to be absolutely Christian. But his message was really all about helping oneself, fulfilling oneself, loving oneself, and so on. And he once said this, I don't think anything has been done in the name of Christ and under the banner of Christianity that has proved more destructive to the human personality and hence counterproductive to the evangelism enterprise than the often crude, uncouth, and unchristian strategy of attempting to make people aware of their lost and sinful condition. In other words, telling people the truth. We cannot tell people the truth, he says. We can't talk about sin because it damages people and it stops them becoming Christians. Isn't that extraordinary? There's a large body of the church that embrace that sort of teaching. But it's completely wrong, you see, because sin is all-pervasive. And unless we come to terms with it and recognize it for what it is, we will never get to the truth. We will never work out what we need to do about it. The strange thing is even the most convinced of atheists are aware of this. Bertrand Russell, no great lover of the Christian faith, once said, it is in our hearts that the evil lies, and it is from our hearts that it must be plucked out. Sin is in our hearts. We've got to deal with it. You may know there was a big debate between the two world wars uh, about humanism. It was an idea that sort of sprung up after World War I. The idea was that as human beings, we are getting better and that we learn from our mistakes. 
After World War I was the idea, it can never happen again. We've learned from it. It was so awful, we must never allow it to happen again. And humanism said, no, it won't happen again because we're getting better, we're getting wiser, and we'll never make those same mistakes again. Well, of course, World War II shattered that naive hope. And there's a man called Professor Joad, C.E.M. Joad, who was a part of that movement, but who later became a believer himself. And he said this, looking back on that time, it is because we rejected the doctrine of original sin that we were always being disappointed. Disappointed by the refusal of people to be reasonable, by the subservience of intellect to emotion, by the behavior of nations and politicians, by the masses' preference for Hollywood to Shakespeare, Mr. Sinatra to Beethoven, above all, by the recurrent fact of war. In other words, he said we couldn't explain it. We said that we as human beings were, were fine, we were learning from our mistakes, but we didn't. We kept on doing the same things, only worse and worse and worse. Well, of course they were disappointed, because they wouldn't face the truth that each one of our heart, each one of us in our hearts is a sinner, that we've gone wrong, and there's something that needs to be dealt with. See, what does this verse say? All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Listen to what John Piper, great preacher of our day, has to say about this verse. What these two verses say, that's verse 23, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and then verse 24, which we're not really looking at this week, are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Jesus Christ. In other words, the problem in verse 23 and the answer in verse 24. What these two verses say is more important for your future than 10,000 books written by man to help you solve your problems. These are the words of God. They tell us our true condition as human beings, and they tell us what God has done to save those who put their trust in his son Jesus. If you build your life on these verses, if the truth of these two verses becomes the foundation of your life, you will be unshakable in a hundred crises. There are some truths that are so foundational and so central that you should memorize them, meditate on them, bind them to your mind and heart with chains and ropes and every kind of adhesive you can find. It's great that, isn't it? Yes, you should learn it. We should learn this verse. Meditate on it. Allow its truth to affect and influence all we do and think. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Just three things very briefly then to note about this. One, what is the meaning of sin here? What is Paul saying? All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Well, both words, the word that's translated sin and the words that's translated fall short, have something of the same meaning. They mean fall short, miss the mark, of an arrow missing the target or falling short of its target. And what is this target they fall short of? Or what is this mark that they're missing? Answer, the glory of God. You see, sin is primarily against God. The fact is that sin is dishonoring God, belittling his glory by not treasuring him, not trusting him, not wanting him as the foundation of our lives and putting something or something else where he should be. So he goes back to Romans chapter 1. There in verse 23, Paul speaks of humanity, that they, human beings, exchange the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal man and birds and animals and reptiles. He's talking about idolatry there. And he's saying that sin, instead of treasuring God's glory, 
in all its wonder and beauty. He exchanges God's glory for something else, infinitely inferior. And we end up loving other things far more than him, treating his glory with indifference. Now here's the rub, you see. Most people regard sin, if they regard sin at all, as being against other people. See, if what we do hurts others, offends others, upsets others, it's wrong. That's what people say. And of course, it's true. There is a truth in that. If we didn't sin, we wouldn't end up hurting people in the way that we do. Of course we wouldn't. But it's actually starting at the wrong end. It assumes, you see, that we are at the center of the universe. And that what hurts us is therefore wrong. And equally, it assumes that everything we want to do, we can do, provided it's not obviously against somebody else. See, that's behind the thinking that says today we must be able to fulfill ourselves, do what we want to do. Sometimes, that is even when it hurts others. Because, you see, we are at the center. I came across these comments not long ago by a religious writer writing about divorce and marriage. He said this, I hope my wife will never divorce me because I love her with all my heart. But if one day she feels that I'm minimizing her or making her feel inferior or in any way standing in the light she needs to become the person God meant her to be, I hope she'll feel free to throw me out even if she's a hundred. There is something more important than our staying together. It has to do with integrity, personhood, and purpose. Now do you see what he's really saying? What he's really saying is this, my own personal desires or my wife's own personal desires, our need for fulfillment comes before anything else. Certainly it comes before keeping God's laws. Now, if we were the center of the world, that might be true. But we're not. We are not the center of the universe. God is. And that's why you see all sin is not first and foremost against each other. It is against God. See, take the sin of David in his adultery with Bathsheba. You remember the story very well. Uh, in 2 Samuel, David disobeys God. He gets in a, involved in an adulterous relationship with another man's wife. She gets pregnant, and David is terrified of being found out. So he arranges for her husband, Uriah, to be killed in battle. And he thinks he's got away with it. God sends a prophet, Nathan, to confront David. David is overwhelmed by guilt of what he's done. And he writes the 51st Psalm, which is one of the loveliest, the most moving of all the Psalms. And in that psalm, he says this, For I know my transgressions, my sin is always before me. And this is the interesting bit. Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Against you and you only. Well, we look at that and think, well, that's not true. What about Bathsheba? What about Uriah? You arrange this man's death and you say that it's actually only against God that you've sinned. But of course, in a sense, ultimately, that is true. Because all sin is first and foremost against God. And until we see that, we won't understand it properly. It is an offense against God. It is God who is hurt more than anyone else when we deliberately sin. It is our offense against Him that is so important. See, if it was just against other people, in a sense, it wouldn't really matter. We could kind of talk ourselves out of it. But if it's against God, we can't. Sin is against God. Secondly, the seriousness of sin. Because our sin is against God, that is why it is so serious. See, the highest sin of any country is treason, isn't it? Often here today, we don't have the death penalty. We do have the death penalty. We have the death penalty for treason. 
And in law, treason is a crime that covers some of the more extreme acts against one's sovereign or nation. Treason against the king was known as high treason. Treason against the lesser superior was petty treason. A person who commits treason in those known in law as a traitor. But the point is that treason is regarded as being more serious than anything else. And what is it? It is an offense against the sovereign. Now that is why our sin is so serious. Because it is treason. And it's not against the king or queen of the country. It is against the supreme ruler of the universe. It is against God himself. You see, we tend to think sin doesn't really matter. Oh, get away with it. It's okay. But we won't. You see, until we see that all sin is an offense against God himself, we will never begin to understand just how serious it is. I've heard it said that all heresy stems from a defective view of sin. I think there's a truth in that. You see, if we think sin isn't quite so important or quite so serious, we'll find all manner of ways to get out of it. We need to see that sin is against God and it is very, very serious. Thirdly, and most strikingly of all, the universality of sin. There is no difference for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. You see, that's what he's been saying all the way through this chapter. There is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands, no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. He's still saying, do you get the message? Do you see what the Bible is saying? We have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And there is no exception. You see, the objection that most people have to the Christian faith today, the reason why most people do not follow it, is because they think they have no need of it. Hey, well, you, you go to talk to people in Morton or wherever it is you come from, and you ask them, and uh, they may go on to church every now and again, or they may not really believe in it. But if they're not committed believers, the one thing you'll always be sure of is they don't think it's very serious. They don't think it really matters. Most people, you see, are not Christian believers because they don't feel they have any need of it. And that may well be those of us who are in the church's fault. Maybe we've allowed people to think that, that it doesn't really matter, that they're quite okay as they are. But the Bible says quite clearly they are not. Each one of us is a sinner in need of saving. There is no difference, verse 22, no difference, no distinction between any of us. We have all sinned. Every one of us is in the same boat. Every one of us here is in that situation before Christ, as it were, acts. Everyone in Morton is in that situation. So the person who serves you in Tesco's, if you pop into Tesco's afterwards, he, she will be in that situation. Or the bank, or the people who work at the school, the bus drivers, the people who work on the roads, the people at the fire service college, the retired folk, the people in the hospitals, the sports clubs, the youngest, the oldest, those with good reputations, those with terrible reputations, the poor, the rich, you name it, every single one of us. There is no distinction. See, we will never be able to show people their need of Christ until they see this truth, that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Until they see that, they will never see their need of a saviour. That's why uh, when we often talk about uh, sharing our faith with people, we pray for a conviction of sin. We pray that people will see that. We pray that people will understand the need 
they have of God. There are thousands of people who are nice people, kind people, neighborly people, and so on, but they don't realize this. And one day they'll have to give an account for it. Well, let's pray that somehow or other God convicts them of their sin. And they begin to see how serious it is. Because until they see it, they will never see their need of a savior. It's not popular, it's not an easy message, but it's absolutely central. There was a preacher who was preaching about sin and the cross uh, one Sunday. And a fellow came up to him at the end of the service and said, look, I don't like the way you spoke about the cross. I think instead of emphasizing the death of the Lord Jesus Christ, it would be far better to preach Jesus the teacher and example. And the preacher replied, tell me, if I presented Christ in that way, would you be willing to follow him? Well, I certainly would, said the stranger, without hesitation. All right, then, said the preacher, let's take the first step. He did no sin. Can you claim that for yourself? man looked confused and someone surprised. Well, I know, he said, I accept, I acknowledge, I do sin. Well then, your greatest need is to have a saviour, not an example. It's true of everyone, isn't it? The greatest need of our world is a saviour. And we have the most wonderful saviour anybody could ever imagine in the Lord Jesus Christ. The one who justifies us freely by his grace, through the redemption, through his buying us back from sin by his death on the we'll never understand the cross until we understand this truth that we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God so I hope we believe it I hope we'll meditate on this but also therefore the more we meditate on it the more we'll be convinced of the wonder the glory of Christ's answer in dying on the cross let's pray that we believe this and it would transform us but let's pray that other people will be convinced of it too and would turn to Christ themselves Let's pray, and then we'll sing our final song together. Let's pray. There is no difference for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Well, these are challenging words because they touch the lives of everyone. All those people out there who think the church is irrelevant, who think the message has got nothing to say, how wrong they are when we read these words and believe them. Convince us of these truths, we pray, and help us to share that wonderful truth with others, the wonderful truth of what you have done to put it right. Convince us, help us to convince others we pray by your spirit in Jesus' name.